Hey, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. We return with our guest, Marcy Winograd, and her discussion and comments regarding Crimea and the Donbass on 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. Enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's very important what you're saying to include this discussion about how Crimea has become part of Russia and how the Donbass has as well. It's not just a, an overt invasion per se. It arguably is an expression of the will of the people post a 2014 coup that uh, you know completely upset the apple cart of the status quo that preceded the U.S.-enabled coup in Ukraine to begin with. Exactly. And as you mentioned, Pedro, the coup in 2014 was largely supported by the West, places like Kiev, the capital, and Lviv. And these areas, you know, a lot of the people from those areas fought, the men fought alongside the Germans, Hitler's army. And that's why they have a a statue of Stephen Bandera, the fascist leader in Lviv. And they even have rallies celebrating the fact that they fought with the German army. And then in the East, you know, the Donbass, they have rival rallies where they're celebrating the triumph of the Red Army over Hitler. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like you have two countries in one country, but in the best of all worlds, if it was going to be one country, it would be one country that recognizes and values the cultural diversity of those regions in the East, not imposes laws that say, says you can't speak Russian here or there. You can't can't watch Russian TV. I mean, that was prohibitive. Uh, you can't uh, access Russian social media. This is all before the invasion. You can't uh, take a plane to Russia. So there was a lot of uh, legislated repression of the, yeah. this really diverse area that preceded all of this. You know, And then we saw the Donbass, the regions of the Donbass, say, you know, we don't want any part of this. We want to separate. And they started, you know, they were engaged in a civil war. And as you may have mentioned, I don't know, 14,000 people are estimated to have died, mostly these ethnic Russians. And at some point they asked Russia, hey, come in. You know, we want your help. See the arms from Russia. We see the arms from the United States. And ever since 2015, as you mentioned, during the Minsk peace accord, after that was signed by Ukraine and Russia and I think it was brokered right by Germany and France. The United States started sending in weapons. This was under Obama. They were non-lethal. And then under Trump, lethal weapons, Biden, lethal, very lethal weapons. And it was as though we were setting up an armed camp on Russia's border. And to your point regarding the Luhansk and the Donetsk eastern provinces requesting formal recognition by Russia and absorption into the, into Russia, Despite great pressure from from many important Russian sectors to protect the people of the Donbass, Putin repeatedly refused those requests because he knew the political fallout from the West would be significant. And in fact, in good faith, pursued the Minsk agreement, which would have allowed both of Lugansk and Donetsk to stay within Ukraine, but they would do so with some personal protections for the, the Russian-speaking peoples that were being so fundamentally mistreated by the U.S.-supported coup government's nationalist forces in the east and let's talk let's talk about that a little bit more because i think your article is really instructive and really important and i wanted you to return you started to talk about how these two charters the u.s ukraine strategic defense framework and the u.s ukraine charter on strategic partnership that were just signed months apart in in august and september of 2021 the contents of which were blatant provocations in the form of its threatening postures to the russian 
national security interests. But before getting your elaborations on these two important strategic frameworks, wanted to circle back to and have you speak to first to elaborate a little bit more about the privatization. You know, we saw in Iraq, the privatizing of Iraq, the absolute looting of their economy under the guise of an unjust invasion by the, the Bremer 100 orders. You know, we go into these countries and we just have a nasty history of ransacking their economies for the economic benefit of a small elite that generates this gross wealth inequality that poisons our world. However, this economic profiteering at the expense of other nations often cannot be successfully executed without a military component, which our foreign policy executes. And it is in this vein that I wanted to circle back and have you elaborate more on the strategic U.S.-NATO military partnerships with Ukraine that were signed in late 2021 that your article addresses and what that signaled to Russian national security interests. You very eloquently and importantly talk about what these strategic frameworks were about. Like Again, I just wanted to elaborate a little bit more on the issue of, even though these were not NATO nations, right, that they were being subsumed under the NATO umbrella and they were being not just militarized, they were being trained and participating in other U.S. military interventions, such as in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so these military security agreements, again, seem to be pointed towards not what's best for Ukraine, but being used by the United States in order to get more surrogate armies uh, to fight some of these conflicts that we, we get immersed in. But can you tell us a little bit more about that charter on strategic sure. partnership? Sure, let's talk about it. So as you mentioned, uh, just some, some background, in uh, 2020, NATO said, Ukraine, you've been with us in Iraq, you've been with us in Afghanistan, Kosovo. We're going to award you status of an enhanced opportunity partner. So that meant Ukraine joined Australia, Finland, Jordan, Georgia, and Sweden on the NATO farm team which meant that they could share intelligence and participate in NATO-led military interventions such as Iraq and Afghanistan and join in war games. They call them war games. That's a euphemism, right? Mock nuclear strikes. We had one as recently as I think it was in October uh, where a number of countries, their names, most of them were not revealed, participated in mock nuclear strikes targeting Russia. So th these mock <laughs> nuclear exercises were actually increasing in other NATO military exercises. We never hear about that in the United States, that this was yeah. also going on near the borders of Russia, as well as missile sites that had offensive capabilities. Within close striking range to Moscow from Poland and Hungary. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Please continue. I mean, yeah. Okay. So these mock nuclear exercises, they went on for two weeks. This was uh, involving 14 NATO countries, as I said, most of them unnamed, and they are they participate in these annual training and flying missions. They command fighter jets, B-52 capable nuclear bombers. Okay, that, so they don't have the nuclear bombs loaded on them, but they're rehearsing for a nuclear war, and they're flying over Belgium, they're flying over the United Kingdom, the North Sea. It's basically a dress rehearsal for a nuclear attack on Russia. Now, Russia conducts its own euphemistically titled war games. But at, at first, the Biden administration said, we're not going to do this because it's too provocative in the middle of a war. But nonetheless, they went ahead. And when they conduct these exercises, this one was called Steadfast Noon. Uh, they have, they load nuclear equipment onto the fighter jets 
of non-nuclear NATO countries. And now this is a clear violation of the spirit of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which bars nuclear sharing. Now, talking about the the U.S.-Ukraine Charter on Strategic Partnership. So the first one, as I mentioned, was signed by Biden and Zelensky, and the second one by Blinken and his counterpart in Ukraine. Now, you mentioned privatization. So I'm going to turn to page nine of this 11-page document, and it says, the United States intends to also expand its support to privatization initiatives Work with Ukraine to create an environment that attracts U.S. investment in these initiatives, support private sector development, and strengthen financial sector supervision. So basically what they're doing is they're carving up previously nationalized industries so that billionaires can abscond with the capital. And this has even set up a website to invite foreign investors in. And the most coveted investor would be a company like Raytheon, military, military contractors. They want military contractors more than anything. They're begging military contractors to come over there. So that was part of the U.S.-Ukraine Charter on Strategic Partnership signed on November 10th, 2021. I can read a few choice excerpts from them. Okay, on page two, we emphasize unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity within its internationally recognized borders, including Crimea. So there they are. The subtext is, we're going to help you retake Crimea. They also go on to say, the United States does not and will never recognize Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea. The U.S. and Ukraine intend to continue a range of substantive measures to prevent external direct and hybrid aggression against Ukraine and hold Russia accountable for Crimea. The U.S. supports Ukraine's right to decide its own future foreign policy course free from outside interference, including with respect to Ukraine's aspirations to join NATO. Now, others might say, well, Ukraine is a sovereign country and it has every right to join NATO if it wants to join NATO. You know, and uh, my response to that would be, do we, world citizens, have a right to live in peace without the threat of nuclear war? Do the people of the Middle East, do the people of Africa have a right to eat? without fearing that Ukraine and Russia will no longer be able to export grain. They are the breadbasket of the world because of a war, because of a Russian naval blockade, because of Ukraine mining the harbors. So when the world is facing an existential crisis like this, the question of do you have a right to do this is is one that makes us pause. I appreciate what you're saying too, because my rights as a citizen are limited if they infringe on your rights as a citizen in a certain way. So in other words, certainly it sounds real vanilla that Ukraine has a sovereign right to decide whether they want to join NATO or not. However, your your own security cannot be gotten at the cost of another country's security. You know, that's really from an international law perspective. When we exercise our right to ensure our national security, it's fine as long as we don't fatally compromise the national security of our neighbors. People have heard this on the show before, but we wouldn't even allow missiles in Cuba, even though Cuba had every right to protect itself at that time because there was pending U.S. invasion plans, Operation Mongoose, and it just followed the Bay of Pigs. But the reality that Cuba had viable national security concerns was trumped by the United States national security concerns, which would never allow nuclear missiles capabilities that close to its shores. You know, that just was not going to happen. That was completely not negotiable. And most people accepted that as rational, that if you cannot, we will not allow 
that type of national security risk on our borders, just 90 miles away from Florida, but 1,000 plus miles from our capital. Yet when Russia exerted the same concerns about its national security, it's gone just basically completely neglected time and time again. I think the example you gave of the Cuban Missile Crisis is an excellent one. Did Cuba have a right to point nuclear missiles at us? Did the Soviet Union have a right to use Cuba to point nuclear missiles at us? We have to consider the rights of others to live mm-hmm. in peace and you know with a secure future. How would you feel if Mexico or Canada set up an armed camp on our border and was a member or vowed, as Ukraine has vowed in its constitution in 2019, Ukraine wrote into its constitution that it was going to join NATO, that it wanted to join NATO. If Mexico wrote into its constitution that it was going to join a hostile nuclear alliance against the United States. You know, it's interesting too, because your article had some links and then I was just doing my own research and there was a article I came across, NATO Steadfast Noon Exercise in Nuclear Modernization in Europe by Hans Christensen in October of last year, you know, well before the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. And, you know, you already alluded to it, but I wanted you to go back to it because I think it's so important, this idea of practicing nuclear bomb sharing, you know, where we have these planes from all of these nations that apparently can carry nuclear weapons. Some of these tactical nuclear weapons are also called non-strategic nuclear weapons are generally designed for battlefield use and have a shorter range uh, that can be loaded up onto these planes. And like you said, that being a party to nuclear non-proliferation treaty, to say that it, it's in violation of the spirit, I mean, just as a, you know, an understatement that we not to hand over any nuclear weapons to any other countries. So you have these threats going on and you have this movement towards the Russian border. You have Poland and Hungary with these missile sites that are One's completed, another's almost completed as well, that has the capability uh, and the operability of housing Tomahawk, you know, nuclear missiles that could get to Moscow in a matter of, you know, minutes or whatever, that type of thing. Yeah, it just just seems that when you started your comments out with, we're all against the war, but the United States certainly has been involved in a major provocation for a long time that's just not reported. I appreciate your article very much for clarifying many of those issues. In the limited time that we have left, Marcy, let me just remind folks that we are visiting with the distinguished peace activist and coordinator of Code Pink Congress, a longtime anti-war activist, Marcy Winograd with Code Pink. There has been this recent outreach by Russian President Putin to uh, order his troops to observe the ceasefire in Ukraine. What can uh, people do in our country that can help maybe facilitate a peaceful ending as soon as possible to this conflict in, in your estimation? And, and, and also, if people want more information about your work and other work around these issues that uh, Code Pink and Medea Benjamin and others and yourself have been working on, how can they access that information? I think information is the key in this war of ideas that you mentioned in your paper. I agree. I think you hit it. Uh, people need to be educated and they need to be informed. And, and they're certainly not going to learn about the background, the context by listening to CNN or MSNBC. Pedro, I am on the steering committee of the Peace in Ukraine Coalition. That's Peace in Ukraine. This is a coalition of over 100 organizations 
Some of the more uh, well-known prominent organizations in the anti-war movement include Veterans for Peace, Democratic Socialists of America, International Committee, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, the United States, World Beyond War, Roots Action, Progressive Democrats of America, our foreign policy team. So uh, we are a coalition that has key demands, ceasefire now. Putin has said he's going to tell the troops there's a truce for the next 36 hours over the Orthodox Christian holiday. And uh, we support a ceasefire. We support a negotiated settlement. This war has to end, you know, and the sooner the better. And it's going to end diplomatically. No one's going to win this or decide the fate on the battlefield. And I'll get to that in a minute. And we are also calling for a freeze, an end to the weapons shipments. You know, we, we are, have spent uh, or set aside, Congress has set aside something like $105 billion or more for this war and about half of that for weapons, military training, intelligence for a war that will not be won on the battlefield. People say, oh, Ukraine has the wind in their back, these Ukrainian fighters. Look, they drove the Russians out of Kherson. Kherson's uninhabitable. It's freezing. You know, there were mus- Russian missile attacks on the electrical grid. Powers, power went down. There's no heat. And this is no way to live. And this is this is not the answer, right? So you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier on how the, the UK and the, the West sabotage earlier peace talks. We need as a peace movement to say enough and to be in front of our Congress members' offices, in those offices, street vigils on street corners and saying, stop the weapons, stop the war diplomacy now. In fact, our Peace in Ukraine coalition is calling for weeks of action January 13th through the 27th. This is timed around Martin Luther King's birthday his remembrance, his legacy of peace to say, stop this money laundering operation. You know, this is a money laundering operation. When you set aside 50, 60, 70 billion dollars for weapons, and much of that will go to military contractors, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin and such to make weapons to send over to Ukraine. That's a money laundering operation. And we have people who are food insecure. 10% of our population in the United States doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. People live paycheck to paycheck. 100 million are in debt, medical debt, college debt. And here we are just pouring, it's, it's you know, never ending money into a war that will not be resolved on the battlefield. I think it's a great point, Marcy, that at the end of the day, what war continues to do is to promote the greatest crime that faces our species, which is the incredible wealth inequality that occurs. It's just a money drain from the common working people to these big military industrial complexes that you refer to in your comments. Before I forget, I yes. also want to share that uh, Code Pink Congress, I, I co-host with Medea Benjamin, the co-founder of Code Pink, this program, Code Pink Congress. We do the program the first and third Tuesdays of the month at five Pacific, 8 Eastern. People want to know more. They can visit codepink.org for these conversations about U.S. foreign policy. We recently just talked about Palestine and, and the far-right fascist government that's ascended, ascended to power under Benjamin Netanyahu in, in uh, Israel. We cover mm-hmm. topics, including Ukraine and Latin America, the progressive wave sweeping Latin America, mm-hmm. something that we're you know, happy about. Uh, we would love to have people join us if they're interested. So that's at codepink.org. Well, let me just share this couple of things that really struck me as I listened to your words tonight had to do with the whole pilfering of the state economy of the Ukraine by other interests. You know, the same thing occurred, and we've detailed it in great depth on this show, 
in Russia with the fall of the Soviet Union, that their state coffers were pillaged and enabled that pillaging was was our great friend, Boris Yeltsin. It's a matter of public record. If you just do your own research, you'll find that the living conditions, the quality of life, the life expectancy was abhorrently low following this Yeltsin government that the United States supported and enabled and who allowed the pilfering of their own economy for the benefit of oligarchs and Western interests at the direct cost to their own people. Just as the privatizing that you talked about with Ukraine did the same for those same special interests in Ukraine. And then you look at where Russia is now regarding the quality of life for the majority population. And you can see to a large extent why there is support for Putin in his country. There's, he's, he's very well endorsed, even though, according to all the information we get about Putin, he's a, you know, a terrible leader. But I think those things are the commonalities of, of Western intervention is the pilfering of, of economies and the continuing to aggregate this, this wealth inequality. And then lastly, the issue of sovereignty that you mentioned that are embedded in all these documents that you spoke of, of 2021, of the U.S.-Ukraine deal. It seems that our concerns for other nations' sovereignty only occurs when they're following our lead and our dictates. But when they really make sovereign choices that are counter to our foreign policy interests, desires, a sovereignty is no longer a concern. These nations like Ukraine have sovereignty unless they want to go to the peace table, as we indicated at the beginning of the show in April of this year. And many have our interests, our twisted perceived interests is to sort of create another Afghanistan for Russia and demilitarize their strength. And actually, really the opposite has occurred. It's been a total failure. But the sovereignty issue, it's a fraud. These countries, they have their own rights to make their own decisions until they come in conflict with these greater powers that uh, take us to war after conflict after conflict after war. But anyhow, before we let you go, I just wanted to remind folks, we've had the great honor of visiting with Marcy Winograd of Code Pink. And Marcy, one more time, if people want more information about how to stay abreast as to the information being made available through Code Pink, what is that website again, please? Sure. Our website for our Peace in Ukraine Coalition is peaceinukraine.org. So that's pretty easy to remember. And to touch on the point you raised earlier about uh, Putin's a truce for the 36 hours over the Christmas holiday, uh, we do support that and we ask people to support a truce. And and they, they can get that information, like what number to call by just accessing your actual website. One more time, the website. Okay, the website is peaceinukraine.org. And if people visit the website and scroll, there's a menu button that says join. And you know you can click on that if, if people want to and join the coalition. The, the uh, Capitol Hill switchboard is 202-224-3121, 202-224-3121. So, you know, anytime people want, they can give their Congress members a call and tell them what they uh, want and what they expect of their representatives. CodePink.org, that's, you know, how people can learn more about CodePink. We have a lot of different campaigns. Outstanding. Thank you, Marcy. We welcome everybody. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, it's been a great really pleasure. Thank you for bringing light into darkness. My pleasure. See you next week.